dive into uh, God's Word. We've been studying the Gospel of John for quite some time now, and we are actually in John chapter 16, and we'll be looking at verses 16 to 24 uh, this morning. So if you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 16. And I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we'll pray asking for the Lord's help and blessing upon our time. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, we'll read all the way down to 24. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, You'll remember the context, um, upper room discourse, an intimate setting. And this is what Jesus says as he continues in talking to them. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. God, there is much relevance in this passage for our lives today. And it is even applicable for our time right now as we gather under your word Lord, we ask that we might receive, that our joy might be full, not in accordance to our own definition or by the standards of this world, but according to your truth, that our hope may be set and fixed upon Christ. And so to him we turn our attention. Lord, grant us the ears to hear and the eyes to see wonderful things contained in your word, that we might be encouraged and spurred all the more to live in obedience, trusting you above all, for you are sovereign and good. And so oversee this time now, be whittling away any pride, callousness, that you might prepare us to receive your word with great joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, as you know, we are in uh, the, the time in this year where we're going through a lot of celebrations, a lot of holidays. And upon reflection upon the holidays, I think it's a little ironic how they work. Maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't. But uh, for most, there's a lot of chaos and anxiety building up and leading up to these grand celebrations. You know, people, for example, are pushing and shoving one another at the mall to uh, finish that last minute uh, Christmas present to bring home uh, 
for their loved ones or you have family members at each other's throats just trying to get out the door to arrive on a Sunday's best for Easter service or maybe you experienced something similar this past weekend. You know, you were in full-blown panic mode. You were stressing out about how the turkey would turn out or frantic to, to get all the side dishes done in time. I didn't have this problem because I didn't do a single thing for uh, our turkey meal. Um, that was entrusted instead to my wife and to other friends. Um, so I was really calm and relaxed. But I was just observing and there's uh, a lot of energy, a lot of commotion going on. And it's ironic. It's ironic because all this frenzy in the context of Christmas cheer or in the context of rejoicing over Jesus' resurrection or in the context, as we just experienced, of a holiday in which we give thanks. But it's funny the transformation that usually takes place when you're gathered around the Christmas tree or in service for Resurrection Sunday or seated around the big table to take on that Thanksgiving meal. Hopefully the adrenaline subsides and the craziness fades into the background and you celebrate without another thought about all, all of those events and the stress leading up to that moment. And it's incredible the change that takes place. And it's not like you weren't really rushed or pushed to your limits before. But when it's time, when it's finally time to enjoy the holiday, the joyous occasion blankets all the work, troubles, and worries that preceded it. This is a common pattern. And Jesus uses this paradigm to teach and instruct his disciples and us. Now, we remember the setting of our passage. For those of you who haven't been with us, it is the 11th hour. Jesus is on the eve of his death, and they, including his disciples, are on the brink of great sorrow. The disciples will feel their hearts shriveled up when their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, dies the most gruesome death. And for the first time in years, for the first time in years, they will be leaderless. But if they would just weather the storm, the difficulties they bear will lead to actually their greatest delight. In the end, it will be worth it. But that's the thing. You have to make it to the end. Their job as followers of Christ is to believe and trust. And so ours as well, because we, in a physical sense, are leaderless. We need to believe and trust in the midst of our trials and troubles to make it to the end. And Jesus will give us incentive on how we can persevere, how we can endure in faith, even in the harshest of times, even when we feel absolutely lonely and downcast. And we do well to be patient and learn from what he unfolds in our passage this morning. I don't have an outline this morning as I usually do with a cute alliteration of three points. Uh, we're just going to walk through the text because what's most important above all is to navigate through Holy Scripture and allow it to work upon our hearts. So uh, I'm just going to walk us through. And the first thing we're going to see is verses 16 to 19. So look again in your Bibles. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this 
what you are asking yourselves. What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Now just isolating those four verses, it sounds a bit repetitive, right? What is going on here in this section? Jesus tells his disciples in a little while they will no longer see him and then again in a little while they will see him. And this topic occupies the bulk of the discussion, the dialogue. I don't know about you, but when I first read these verses, the conversation comes off like an exchange between a magician and his audience. You know, a little while and poof, I'm gone. And then a little while, poof, I'm back. You know, what's going on? It sounds like an explanation, some long drawn out explanation for some trick or some sleight of hand. But Jesus, instead, what he's actually doing is he's taking us backstage to reveal how his disappearing act works. And here is the great reveal. Here is the grand truth. His disappearance is only for a moment. His disappearance is only temporary. Now we have the vantage. For those of us who are familiar with the Christian faith or who have grown up in the church, we know what Jesus is getting at. He's talking about his death and his resurrection, right? Very basic tenets of the faith. But unlike these disciples, we live on the other side of the cross where we are the beneficiaries of hindsight. And you know what they say about hindsight. It's always 2020. We can fit the puzzle pieces together because we see the whole picture and it is spectacular. The grand tapestry of redemption. But these disciples, these disciples, as Jesus is speaking to them, are not privy to this perspective. Theirs is a limited, restricted, confined view, one shaken by all this talk about the cross to come that they can't see past the cross. They're struggling with all the implications of Jesus' death, the separation, the fear, and the loneliness. They've always assumed to be with Jesus and He with them. After all, that's all they've known these past three years. They've labored and lived together for three years. They broke bread together, battled the Pharisees together, ministered together, traveled together to Galilee, Samaria, and now into Jerusalem. Everything, everything has been together. But not this cross. Not this cross Jesus is talking about. And so it's no wonder Jesus' suggestion of separation falls upon deaf ears. It's a big change. And we know big changes are hard. Many of you have experienced something similar when you adjusted to life after college or life after the death of a loved one or life after you moved on for a, from a job that you've been at for so long. You wonder, you know, what is my life going to look like now? You wonder, how am I going to cope? That transition is tough. It takes time. So again, Jesus returns to this difficult announcement about his departure. And we know, we know this was hard for the disciples to stomach. It's very plain. The verb in a saying in verse 18 is in the imperfect tense. And all that you need to know about that is that it suggests that this phrase was uttered more than once. It was repeated again and again. The disciples were murmuring and mumbling Jesus' words back and forth. They were anxious. Why? They kept asking because they didn't fully understand. They just understood enough to worry. In fact, we see how hung up they are on this by observing 
the mere frequency of this little saying of a little while. Four times. Now just think about that. Four times in four verses, that's 100%, the phrase is pretty much repeated word for word. You see, it's crucial that they come to terms with Jesus' statement. It's His way of preparing them. You know, sometimes when I watch an intense show or movie, I will readily admit before all of you, I can't handle all the suspense. You know, I, I can't take the creepy music or the death flags that are being raised during an eerie scene. And so to diffuse the tension, to alleviate my concern, what I'll do is if I'm able to, I'll press pause, right? I'll press pause and fast forward to the very end. And I'll make sure that my favorite character or the character of my worries is still alive and okay. So you see, I lack the discipline to wait it out and allow the, the plot to naturally unravel. And I know, I know, I'm ruining the story, the movie, the show, whatever it may be. And my wife says I, I shouldn't watch it if I'm too scared. But I don't think that's it. I'm not too scared, okay? I'm just too empathetic. My compassionate soul cares too much uh, about these characters to see them suddenly experience tragic misfortune or, or to be killed off by a freaky clown in, in a sudden moment. That's why I peek ahead. Uh, but once I know the end, once I know that they're still around, it's all good, right? I can rewind to the original spot and watch in perfect peace. Because I know regardless of how grim, how dark, how dangerous things may get, in the end, the character is going to be fine and well. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is bolstering these disciples' fearful heart. Yes, in a little while, you will see me no longer. But that's not how the story ends. Again, in a little while, you will see me. It's going to be okay. For just a moment, Jesus is pressing the fast-forward button. He's spoiling the story so the disciples need not be riddled with fear. Getting rid of the shock of His death will take the sting out of the situation. Telling them the ending now will reassure them through it all. It will only be a little while until they are together again. After He resurrects, He will return to them. When that happens, there will be unspeakable joy. Look at verse 20 in your Bibles. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't deny the pain. He doesn't ignore the fact, the reality that the disciples will indeed weep and lament. When Jesus is suspended from the cross, when the author of life is drained and dead, while the world rejoices, yes, the disciples will be absolutely crushed. They will be devastated. Jesus doesn't sidestep their sorrow. He acknowledges it head on. You will be sorrowful. But take heart. Here's the hope. The sorrow is temporary. The sorrow is transitional to something else. It is morphing into joy. Did you hear that? We need to read this verse with precision. Jesus doesn't promise. 
He doesn't guarantee to remove the sorrow and then just fill and inject the disciples' life with joy. He is much more powerful. You see, He has the ability to transform their sorrow into joy. The same event that causes them to shake with immense fear will be the same exact event that causes them to shake with immense joy. And we'll soon see this communicated in the illustration Jesus employs in the next verse. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the same child that a woman is pained by is the same child she rejoices once delivered, right? It's not like the, the woman is terrorized by one kid in her womb and only to, to, to give birth and, and to be handed another baby. No, same child. The very one responsible for all that pain is the same child that's precious. The transformation is one from sorrow into joy. Now, church, I hope that challenges us. I hope that convicts us and stretches us reforms, maybe reorientates our thinking. So many times we assume the solution to joy, the path to, to having our problems done away with is just to have our problems eliminated. You know, God, banish this disease, this cancer from my body or do away with my financial difficulties or send my unreasonable coworker or boss away. Then... I'll be happy. Then my problem will be solved and I'll be good. But see, God is far wiser than we are. And God will not settle. He wants to do something, yes, that is harder, but infinitely better. Sometimes the way He works is through the sorrow. And it is telling of His power, His intellect, and His glory when He has the capability to transform our deepest pains into our eternal pleasure. He transforms our tendency to doubt and disbelieve when we are in a trial into stronger, resilient faith. He transforms our financial difficulties into a heart that will prize Christ and trust His provision. He transforms our insufferable boss into the best of friends and maybe a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Now the results aren't always this golden or agreeable to our likings. It may very well be that our problems don't go away, but they can become platforms on which we stand to behold God and the glory of His grace. We can trust always. He knows and does better. So beloved, hang in there. Sorrow is only putty in the hand of the divine potter. God molds it for His sovereign purposes and for our eternal joy. We see this most clearly in what Jesus is pointing the disciples to. If you want proof, then look to the cross. There, yes, Christ dies, the world rejoices, and yes, the disciples are filled with sorrow, but only for a moment. In a little while, the tables turn. Christ rises. The world is rebuked. And the disciples, the disciples are the one rejoicing. Reversal is familiar to us. It is part and parcel to life. And Jesus uses an analogy I've already alluded to and one we all understand. Verse 21. 
He's supporting his claim that he will transform sorrow into joy with a human experience. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. This illustration, anecdote, is universal. It's common to mankind. Everyone, male and female, knows giving birth is no walk in the park. It is a painful process. I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in biology to know how taxing it is for a woman to push another human being out of her body. That's why it's called labor and delivery, not happy and fun time, right? Now, I remember when my wife, Barry, gave birth to both Maddie and Everett. It was hard work, and I speak for the both of us, uh, for Bear, because she was actually the one giving birth to our children. For me, because I'm not good with the sight of blood. It makes me queasy. But praise God, by His grace, we did it. You know, Bear gave birth to our children, and I didn't faint from the traumatic experience. You know, in, in hindsight, Barry probably helped and supported me uh, more than I did her. But that's besides the point. After all the commotion, after all the intense pain and, and the worries, it's surreal. I'm speaking firsthand experience. It's surreal when you are holding your child for the very first time, staring right at this cute miniature version of you. All right, in that moment, it's almost as everything else goes quiet and you are caught up in the sheer wonder and joy of this new life. And because I'm married and also because my wife isn't here, uh, I'm just going to speak on behalf of her, which is uh, never wise uh, and always dangerous. But for the sake of the sermon, I will take liberty. If you were to interview my wife, Barry, I'm sure she will tell you the pain of delivering uh, a child is intense and very real. It's not imagined or uh, fictitious, but it becomes eclipsed. It becomes eclipsed in the joy of holding your son or daughter for the first time. Again, it's not like the pain is imagined. It's just that the joy is so surpassing, so exceeding, that the joy of a new child dwarfs the agony experienced. So what Jesus sets out to do, verse 22, he now links it to what he will endure, what he will experience as well as the disciples. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. Jesus links his death and resurrection to the process of childbirth. And notice the sudden shift in this verse. We expect to read, so also you have sorrow now, but you will see me again. But that's not what we find in our text. Again, we need to read the Bible carefully. Jesus declares, I, I will see you again. Now, why this change? The unexpected shift doesn't mean the disciples won't see him as if, you know, when Jesus resurrects, he's going to duck around in a quarter and just around a corner and just peek at the disciples from afar like, a creepy man. No, rather the change is emphatic. The change stresses and accentuates what's of utmost significance. When it comes down to it, what's foundational will not be their ability to see him, but his initiative to see them. He comes again 
Don't miss that, Christian. Jesus' resurrection is His prerogative, His power, His purpose. He rises from the dead to see us, to pursue us. All oh, that should warm our hearts. It reminds me of John 10, 18, when Jesus announces, No one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So here, it's as if this is Jesus' subtle yet encouraging reminder that He's in complete control. He promises to appear before the disciples because He wants to see them again. And that's why their hearts and beloved ours can rejoice. Jesus so loves His own, His precious children, nothing can prevent Him from seeing them. Not even death can separate us from the love of Christ, right? As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. The disciples, yes, will suffer intense sorrow, but that sorrow will be taken away at the sight of Christ. And what they have, no one can take away. Christian, let me ask, is that what you value? Is that what you prize the most? That you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, secured by sovereign God. And does this hope and promise of reward renew and recast how you see, how you go through, how you experience everything in life, including deep sorrow, and pain. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, part of our scripture reading this morning. He writes in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, beyond all comparison. So get that. Affliction is recast as light and momentary. Not because it doesn't hurt, but because in comparison, it's nothing. And more than that, Paul says we need to move even beyond comparison because the eternal weight of glory is so awesome, so weighty, it's in a separate category. The glory and joy of what's to come is so exceedingly great You can't even hold it or compare it to the affliction and sorrow we experience in this lifetime. And that's not, again, to minimize the pain of what we endure, but only to maximize the prospect of what's to come. Consider this. Our broken families make us long for a better family, the family of God. Our failing bodies Prepare us for one that is unsusceptible, impervious to sin and sickness. Our greatest disappointments in this life are only pruning us for our greatest hope in Christ. Our present sorrows point us to a future joy, one that can never be taken away. Where have you placed your joy, Christian? The human heart fluctuates when we bind and tie our joy to fickle things, to capricious things. Even so for us as Christians, 
I know I struggle with this. You know, one minute you're praising God for His goodness in your life. The next you're mourning in dust and ashes when something happens. Sure, when it's all gravy, God is good. But when things head south, well, you're having heart palpitations. Why? Because it's indicative of the true place of your joy. Even as Christians, really, your joy in that moment of worry isn't in God, but in something else. Something situational, something circumstantial. You see, unsteady joy, unsteady joy is a result of holding on to an unstable object. I'll prove it to you. You know, if you put your joy in your income, guess what happens when it's depleted? So your joy. If you put your joy in your children, their success, their accomplishments, well, when tragedy strikes, so goes your joy. If you put your joy in how much people make of you, your reputation at work, or how your peers view you, well, then when you're slighted, when your reputation and name, when they're marred, well, so your joy nose dives. What is it for you? Is it possible that the reason you are so restless and racked with anxiety be owing to the fact that you are building your joy, you are setting your life upon shifting sand? Christian, set your joy upon the solid rock, upon your heavenly reward, upon your everlasting salvation and eternal joy that can never be taken away. On that day when you will see your Lord and Savior face to face. Jesus' resurrection is preview. Jesus' resurrection secures and grants it. And what the world does not give, it does not have the authority to take away. That is why we gather as a church. This is both the fire and desire of the soul of every Christian. We sing of a crucified Savior, do we not? We can celebrate His death, unabashedly so, boldly, because we know He resurrects. We can rejoice in the midst of sorrow because of all we have in Christ and all we have is Christ. And look at one incredible benefit. Just one, Jesus unpacks and outlines in these last two verses. Verses 23 and 24. In that day, referring to when He resurrects and and the new age, the new era He's bringing In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name. Disciples are blessed with a tremendous privilege. They will no longer ask anything of Jesus. They will instead have direct direct access to God, the Father. How? In Jesus' name. When Jesus dies and resurrects, He will no longer be with the disciples because He goes to stand before the Father. He goes to lay requests and petition on our behalf that even right now, presently, He is advocating for our needs. That presently, He is praying on behalf of the church at this very moment. Now, many of us don't 
realize how blessed we are to have this luxury of prayer. We blush in disbelief at such an offer that whatever we ask in the Father, He will give to us. Yes, it's promise indeed, but this isn't a blank check to fulfill our wildest dreams. This isn't some magical formula to have all your wishes granted to you. Now, sadly, some have perverted this verse and taken it out of context where you just utter the words in Jesus' name and it has all this magical effect to it and all the health and prosperity are promised to be yours. Beloved, that is a perversion. That is heretical and goes against what Jesus is teaching. That entirely misses the point. The great Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Much modern prayer, even by serious Christian people, is useless and ineffective because the people involved approach God thinking that He's obliged to grant their requests because of something they have, uh, something they have themselves done for Him. But friends, straight from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, we pray in Jesus' name, not by our own credentials, accomplishments, and worth, but solely, only by the merits of Christ, by His death and resurrection. And when we understand whose credentials we are praying in, it will shape the content of what we pray for. You see, praying in Jesus' name means praying in accordance with His desires, His instructions, His revelation, His character, in alignment to all that the name represents. To give you an illustration, think of the Old Testament. The Israelites were commanded, one of the Ten Commandments, was that they would not take God's name in vain. Not that they were prohibited from actually uttering His name, but they should refrain from misrepresenting who He is, all of His attributes, what He stands for. And so we are instructed to pray in Jesus' name, not like it's a password to get whatever we want from God, but as the brand name that is labeled on to all of our requests lifted up. Praying in Jesus' name, you see, sounds less like wishing to pass our test with flying colors or win in our competition and more like praying for an attitude and response that reflects a trust in God's sovereignty and His goodness, no matter the outcome. Praying in Jesus' name sounds less like an itemized list of material wants that will make you happy and healthy, and more like a groaning for sanctification and spiritual holiness. Praying in Jesus' name sounds less like the removal of sorrow, but for the joy of Christ to still pulsate forth in the midst of much sorrow, much grieving. Praying in Jesus' name is filtering your expectations and wants through His life, death, and resurrection. You know what the key is, church? Spend less time on what comes before in Jesus' name in your prayers and spend more time just thinking, meditating, upon in Jesus' name, and allowing that to shape and steer your prayers. Let me ask, by way of application, would Jesus' words in verse 24 still hold true today if they're directed towards you? Would they be an open rebuke to your private prayer life? 
Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Could it be that your life is sapped of His joy simply because you have not asked? If that's the case, that's nobody's fault but your own. But know this, nothing prevents you. Nothing stops you from asking now or tonight before you sleep or tomorrow when you wake. Oh, that we would be spurred to be people of prayer because that is the channel in which we warm our hearts to the joy of Christ. Oh, pray for the lost. Pray for the church. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your children. Pray for your trials. Pray for your sins. Pray for your growth. Pray for your obedience. Pray for your heart. Pray God down into your souls until His joy fills your life. May our lack of joy never be a result of our laziness or lack of asking. Yes, Jesus departs. And that will devastate and demoralize the disciples. But that's not the way things end. He goes to accomplish something greater, to guarantee a presence that is eternal in the gift of the Holy Spirit sending Him, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to pray in Jesus' name, maintaining that open line with God, enduring the trials we are afflicted with for the joy that we have in Christ that we might live for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, what a blessing Your Word is because it is truth. It can ground and anchor us, Lord, in ways that our experience and our own wisdom cannot. And so, Lord, we pray that You would do exactly that, that You would cement our feet at the foot of the cross, their eyes would be glued to Jesus Christ who dies. And while that devastates our hearts, Lord, may it at the same time elicit within us a response of trust and joy, knowing that your Son has resurrected and he reigns on high. He has ascended to your throne. And he stands before you as our high priest, as our great advocate, as we will see in the rest of the Gospel of John, that we might have peace because you have overcome the world that we might have peace because you have the divine authority to transform our sorrows into joy. Lord, help us to have this perspective through all things and troubles we encounter in life, that we might honor you and live in obedience to your Son. We thank you for your word. We ask that it would continue to nourish our souls, that we might grow in our love for you and our love for one another. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.